In your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Exodus chapter 3. And in a moment, we'll be looking together at verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In a sermon that I've titled, In the Presence of Holiness. In the Presence of Holiness. Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. And this morning we come to the end of our study on the holiness of God. Now that is not to say that there is not more to discuss. We've spent a good amount of weeks looking at the holiness of God and, and how that relates to us. And I started this series telling you that I wanted to hold off on defining that word holiness as long as I could possibly go. And I think I held out until the second week. Uh, but even then, I mentioned that the word holiness is incredibly tough to define. Holiness describes God who cannot fully be described. What we've come to acknowledge about the holiness of God is that God is transcendently above and beyond everything that we ever know. Although God cannot be explained with all the words in the world and all the words in the universe, we do know that God is infinitely above all wisdom and knowledge of man. At times, that can lead us to feeling extremely disconnected from God. Uh, knowing that God is, is so far above and beyond and, and so greater and higher than we ever will be, it means sometimes that we kind of feel the separation between us and God. When we understand that God is infinitely holy and that you and I are not, it can feel like there is this intense and immense separation from God, that there's no way we can relate, that there's no way we can be interlocked or, or have a relationship with one another, almost as if there's a gap between us and God that no bridge can ever get to us. That leaves us feeling like we're stuck living out days here on earth without reaping the full blessings of this holy God that we read about in Scripture. This was generally the view that was accepted in the 18th century, which saw the appearance of a new religion that was known as deism. Deism was a sort of a compromise between Christian theists and atheistic naturalists. The most common metaphor that was used in deism to describe God was that of a divine clockmaker. In deism, God was, was viewed as almost this clockmaker who the God is, is, he's the one that's created all things. He is the one who brought order and design to this entire and vast universe. And just like the clockmaker would create and build and bring order and design to the big clock. But as a clockmaker would put all the springs together and he put all the gears together that make the clock, he would turn it and get it ready to get into motion, wind it up, and then allow the clock to operate completely on its own. That was the way that deism said that God operated, that he created all things, he brought order, he brought design to all this creation, and then he sent it off to do and function on its own, completely separate from this creator God. God essentially got the world up and running, and then left it to operate on its own. Deists believe that God made the world in such a way that God can remain completely and forever disconnected from the world and all the operations and all the functions that happen here in this world. Deists believe that God is therefore not involved 
in any of our day-to-day life that there is no interactions at all between God coming down to man, let alone man going up to God and communication going back and forth. If God is completely disconnected from us since he created us and put us in motion to set us off into the atmosphere, do whatever we want, and there is no communication that is going back and forth. There is no God interacting in the affairs of man. There is no man reaching out to God for help and for counsel from God. And deism may not have lasted too long as a viable religion, but its influence, I think, has hung around longer than what we may realize. There are two main reasons why deism was so significant. First, although it seemed to be just a a tiny little blip on the radar screen throughout human history, deism, it happened to emerge at the precise time when the United States was in its very formative stages. Deism was a very influential view when the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States were being drafted. Many of the traditional Christians of the day accepted the teachings of deism. And the second reason that deism was promoted was it was a view that the universe essentially operated completely independently, free from any divine intrusion. And even though this view has long since passed, no one today would claim to be a deist. At least, it'd be hard to find someone that would. Most people would not identify this, although what we find is that a lot of people still hold to some of these values. And as much as as deism was a compromise between two different beliefs a little over 200 years ago, I think it's safe to say that many people that are alive and living in the world today would view deism as a good compromise today as well. This would be something that many people would be able to get on board with rather easily. In fact, many people unknowingly ascribe themselves to the views of deism. To many people, the idea of a divine creator, the, uh, one supreme being who created and brought order and design to every part of this universe, that makes sense. A lot of people can get on board with that concept of a God who brought order and design like the clockmaker would to a clock. A lot of people can get on board with that. And then it helps solve so many other questions regarding just the beginning of life and the beginning of the universe because it's too hard for a lot of people to just believe that out of nothing, a big bang came, where those two objects came and collided in the first place, came into existence, I don't know. But it's easier to believe in a divine creator who created all things, brought order and design to all things, and then just kind of sent it off to fly on its own like a little bird and to just function completely independent of the one who created it. And when you can believe that, it's an easy jump from that point to then conclude that this same creator is basically completely disconnected, completely uninvolved and indifferent with everything that is happening with this creation that he brought order and design to. And based on the current state of this world, I think that's an easy conclusion that many people have made and they've adopted. And this is how statistics can show that over 80% of Americans claim to be Christians. That is a recent study that has shown that over 80% of Americans claim to be Christians. Now, if that were true, churches would not be closing. We'd be building new churches every single day. We would not be struggling to fill chairs and seats and pews in churches. We'd be bursting at the seams if it was true 
that 80% of Americans were truly Christians. When people are believing that God created everything but remains completely disconnected from everything that he created, then there's no need or there's no concern for people here on the, on the planet Earth to seek fellowship with a God who doesn't want anything to do with them. Right? If God created you, and if God created the entire universe that you live in, and then he basically sent you off to fly like a little bird on your own, to do your own thing completely disconnected from him, why would you ever want to seek him out, a God who wants essentially nothing to do with you, and that's why he sent you to do your own thing? Now, we may not preach deism, but we end up promoting such a viewpoint when we're not emphasizing the importance of church attendance when we're not emphasizing the importance of regular prayer and Bible reading and having an active and a vibrant relationship with Christ, when we're not promoting a personal relationship with God, we're basically telling people that God is disconnected from all the affairs of man here on earth and that there is no need for you to seek fellowship with him, let alone come to church on Sunday. And this is unfortunately the common theme in many of the churches across America where the word of God is not being preached and the true Christian life is not being embraced. We have a generation of so-called Christians who are, are more deists than they are Christians, believing that God created them, but their existence is completely independent from God. They're not interested in living for God because in their minds, God has left them. God has abandoned them. God has let them do what they want. He created them. He brought order and design to their bodies, to the world around them. But God says, all right, you're on your own to do whatever you want. From time to time, we'll receive phone calls here at church at people who are going through any number of difficulties and did a Google search. I've, I picked up the phone late hours of night. Oh, how'd you hear about the church? I just Googled the church. And there's, this was the first church. This is the closest church to where I live. And they call the number because they only feel like reaching out to God when they're in trouble. When there's a big problem that they can't figure out how to deal with on their own. And they've exhausted every channel of their own, every effort on their own, on their own part. And so as one last ditch effort, as a, as a Hail Mary, they'll look out. They'll, I was going to say open up the phone book, but no one does that anymore. They'll open up the phone, do a quick Google search, nearest church to me, and they'll dial the number seeking some help. The point is that we seem to be more apt to live our lives here on earth with no consideration that we, at this very moment and every moment of our lives, are in the presence of holiness. However, people, it doesn't matter how, how long we've been looking for hope or for anything else, there is something more transcendent about this life than what we realize. We have long been looking for something that elevates us above and beyond the greatest of what this life offers. And I think that's built into each and every one of us. No matter what you're going through, you have this innate nature telling you that there is something more and better than what you are experiencing right now. We seek intelligent life beyond this, beyond this planet. And so what do we do? We send astronauts into space. We search this planet far and wide, and we find evidence of ancient civilizations, and we come to the conclusion that some of these ancient civilizations received wisdom and help, this is the crazy part, from extraterrestrial beings. 
So much of what we do here on earth is done with the mindset of seeking something greater, seeking something bigger than what is known and what can ever be experienced here on earth. We want something that is set apart. We want something that is more significant. We want something that is more sacred. We want something that is holy. And there seems to be this innate desire within every single human being that hungers to be filled by that which is holy. We just don't know what it looks like. We long for something more. We have grown accustomed to our lives and, and, and seek something that elevates us above the normal. We catch glimpses of such aspirations based on some things that we see in movies and things that we read in books. These would often end up being delusions. Drive us, though, to seek after a life that is transcendent, a, a life that is taking us to another level, a life that makes us feel better, all of our efforts end up falling short, though, of the holiness that God offers. But nonetheless, there remains a void within each of us that longs for that which is holy. Moses, here in Exodus chapter 3, he experienced a taste of God's holiness in his encounter with God out in the wilderness. Your Bibles are open to Exodus chapter 3. I want you to follow along as I read the first six verses. Exodus chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. He was afraid to look upon God. In this encounter with God, Moses is commanded to keep distance from God's immediate presence. Again, there it says in verse number five, draw not nigh hither. Keep your distance, God says. He's commanded here. And then God commanded Moses to take off his shoes for the ground that he was standing on was holy ground. Now we mentioned this at the beginning of our study several weeks ago about God's holiness. And we talked about the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had a, an interesting encounter with the presence of God in the temple where he sees this incredible vision of angels and seraphim, the angels that were having six wings. And it says, with two of their wings, each of these angels covered their feet, the Bible says. Moses is here commanded to uncover his feet, to take off his shoes. And in both instances, whether Isaiah 6 or Exodus chapter 3 here, the feet point to our creatureliness. They evidence the fact that we are not the creator being, but we are created being. There is a creator in whose presence that we have entered into. 
God's word tells us that we cannot look upon God and live. And what we see with the angels back in Isaiah chapter 6 is that they were not just covering their feet with two of their wings, but another two wings were also covering their faces. They covered their faces to shield themselves from the awesome majesty and the glory of the face of God that was present there. And they covered their feet acknowledging that they are created beings, but created beings in the exalted presence of the creator God. And so as Moses here is faced with this incredible encounter with a burning bush, with the presence of God there speaking to him from the midst of the burning bush, he's instructed to remove his shoes because any ground before the presence of the Lord God is immediately made holy. Moses, by removing his shoes, was showing respect. He was showing reverence. He was showing honor to God as he approached God in fear, acknowledging God's holiness and acknowledging his own personal humility before this holy and majestic God. At some point in him approaching the burning bush, Moses crossed into God's holy space, if you want to look at it that way. He crossed a point where he was in his own personal space to now being in the holy space of God. He crossed that point, and that's at that point where God said, now it's time for you to take off your shoes because now you're in my space, and every area of my space is holy, especially the ground upon which you stand. There was nothing significant about the ground that made it holy. There was nothing different about the specific space around that burning bush in the desert that made the ground holy. What made the ground holy was the presence of God. At the burning bush, Moses experienced a visible manifestation of the holy God, which comes with an outward manifestation of that holiness. Now, there's another Old Testament passage that describes such an encounter. We're going to kind of bounce around uh, in Genesis chapter 28 and verses 12 through 19. Hold your place here in Exodus chapter 3. Turn back to Genesis chapter 28. Here in Genesis chapter 28, we have the account of Jacob and his own personal experience with God at a place called Bethel. Listen to what it says in Genesis 28. And verses 12 through 19. Genesis 28, verses 12 through 19. This is speaking of Jacob. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. 
and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. So Jacob has a dream here where he sees this ladder that stretches from earth all the way to heaven. And he describes the scene that he's viewing here. He sees angels descending and angels ascending on it. And then he hears the Lord speak to him from the top of heaven saying, I am the Lord God of Abraham. And Jacob responds by waking up in fear and he cries out. He says, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of of heaven. Now, there are several significant details about this event. The first image that Jacob sees is that of this ladder. And the ladder serves as a connection between heaven and earth, essentially connecting that which is holy up in heaven with that which is unholy here on earth. The ladder is really a picture of God providing a way into his holy presence that was seemingly closed off through all other means. Now we also see that the specific place where Jacob had this encounter receives a whole new name. And that is the name Bethel. Because it is deemed not only, he says, the house of God, but also a virtual gateway to heaven. The stone that Jacob used for his pillow was also significant because even though there was nothing unusual about the stone itself, after this incredible encounter, Jacob anointed it with oil, the Bible says, and he essentially consecrated and marked that spot so that it now became sacred. This was the spot where he encountered God. Sacred places in biblical times were often marked with memorial stones. When Noah and his family survived in the ark, waters receded. We're told in Genesis chapter 8 and verses 18 through 20, it says, And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What these verses are telling us is that as soon as Noah and his family were safely able to go forth from the ark, after all the waters had, had receded, he built, it says, an altar to the Lord to make an offering to God. But the purpose of the altar was not only to make an offering to God, but also to serve as a constant memorial, marking the place of a new beginning. This was showing where God had delivered them from destruction to redemption. We see a similar instance throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter number 12, in verses 7 through 8, we read about Abram. He's not even Abraham yet. He's Abram. It says in Genesis 12, verses 7 through 8, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He built an altar marking a memorial, a significant and sacred location. In Genesis 26, verses 23 to 25, we read about Isaac in a place called Beersheba. 
It says, And he went up from thence to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and I will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. When Moses went and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the commandments of the Lord, they all responded with one voice, and they said, All these words which the Lord has said will we do. I want you to notice what Moses said, and then did, rather, in Exodus 24, in verse number 4. It says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and builded an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, each of these instances records a different time when an altar was built in a specific place to mark a sacred, sacred event. Each passage illustrates an occasion where God took something that was unholy and he set it apart as holy. There's nothing significant about the stones or the, the instruments that were used to build the altar, but now that they were building and, and made into an altar to signify an encounter that this specific individual had with God, now it became a sacred and a holy object. Our encounters with God, our encounters with the holy, are not just an encounter with some different dimension of reality. Our encounters with the holy are meetings with the absolute reality of God. The Christian life is not about an involvement with a religious experience. The Christian life is all about meeting. It's all about fellowshipping with a holy God who forms the foundation and core of our very existence. The true Christian life is a God-centered life. The true Christian life, it's not about giving God part of our lives. The true Christian life is not about keeping God just close enough so that you can call yourself a Christian, but not too close that you're labeled a lunatic by everyone out in the normal world. The true Christian life is about keeping Christ at the very center of everything that we do. That means that we allow God and we allow His Word into our entire life and to form our worldview. The Christian life is not about us setting our own standards and then trying to bring God in to fit into the standards that we've set for our life. If Christ, if Christ is not actively and a center, central part of your life, then something is wrong. God's not interested in having our leftovers. God's not interested in standing on the sidelines of our lives only for us to call Him in when we feel like there's an issue. If Christ is not preeminent in your life, then something is drastically wrong. If Christ is not preeminent in your life, then you're going to suffer. And by preeminent, I mean that He comes first. If we're only thinking about God when we're told to, thinking, to think about God, then something's wrong. If we have to be constantly reminded to read God's Word and to pray regularly, something is wrong. When Christ is preeminent in our lives, it's evident. It's evident in how we speak. It's evident in, in how we act. It's evident in, in how we think and just the way we conduct ourselves from day to day. How are we approaching that which is holy in our lives? How are we approaching that which is holy in our lives? In our day, we experience holy space when we come to church. The biblical word for church refers to people. Not a building. It refers to people. 
Most of the time when we use the word church, though, we generally are referring to a building. Because after all, believers typically need a, a physical structure to gather in. I say typically because there are plenty of churches that gather with no building at all. But it's just easier for us to call this building church instead of referring, it, referring to it as the church building. In this sense, where we have a, a physical structure and an actual building to come and to gather in, churches are designed to serve as a kind of sacred place where we can enter and experience that which is holy, encounter that which is holy. That is why in some of the older church buildings that we see, the architecture was incredibly ornate. We don't see much in some of the newer modern buildings, but older church buildings, they communicated almost a nonverbal message in their architecture. The use of high ceilings, of vaulted ceilings, towers, and even spires all served to communicate that the inside of the building was used to meet with a holy God. That you were entering a holy space when you entered that building. All of those features were designed to suggest God's holiness was present as most of the time these buildings were distinct from all the other buildings that were around them. Now we've moved away from this trend today where churches today look more like town meeting halls and the sanctuary becomes more of a stage and the congregation becomes more of an audience than anything else. The trend that we're seeing is that we've been moving away from keeping holy that which God intended to be holy. The churches are becoming less and less a place where we actually come to meet with God and have encounter with God and more a place where we come to fellowship with people. Now, it started with the outside of the building. But the mindset then shifted to what was done within the walls of the building. And what we're missing is a profound sense of a threshold, of an entering into a holy place from an unholy place. Look again at Exodus chapter 3, and notice verses 3 through 5 again. Exodus chapter 3 and verses 3 through 5. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. At some point, when Moses turned aside and took a closer look and came to step a little bit closer to this bush that was burning and not consumed, he crossed a threshold where the ground that he now stood on was holy. He crossed into God's holy space from that which is unholy. Now we've gone today and we've just systematically removed those, those thresholds. And rather than going in the positive direction where we've tried to extend the holy into a greater region and extended the reaches and the walls of the holy further outward, we've gone and removed that which is holy entirely and replaced it with that which is unholy. Now think about how this change is seen. I remember, I remember uh, visiting an, an old church building, downtown Boston, and being amazed 
at the architecture, both on the in, from the outside as well as the inside. And I remember as we walked into the church building that for whatever reason, no one said anything. There was no sign saying that we had to do this, but everyone's voice immediately dropped to a whisper. There wasn't a service going on. We weren't interrupting anything. There was a few people just walking around. But for some reason, as we entered into that building, we all lowered our voices to that of a whisper. It was like we were all stunned by the silence from the beautiful stained glass windows and the overall character of this old cathedral that had been in existence for over 200 years. I remember sitting in one of the pews, and I remember feeling like I had to be so delicate touching everything. I mean, it had been in existence for over 200 years. Now, what damage could I do? But I still felt like I had to tiptoe and I had to touch and be very careful and very delicate with how I treated everything. And I remember sitting, with, sitting on one of these pews, which, by the way, had no cushion. It didn't recline. It was a straight 90-degree angle. It was the most uncomfortable position I could ever imagine sitting in for longer than any stretch of time, let alone for sometimes hours on end, which is how long their services went. You're welcome, by the way. I'm not going to keep you here that long. But every part of it, outside, inside, was so ornate, was so architecturally incredibly beautiful. And we were whispering and, and tiptoeing from one inch of the building to the next and delicately handling every little thing that we touched. And it was as if when we walked through the front doors, we knew that we crossed a threshold. We didn't discuss it ahead of time. We didn't say, okay, listen, before we go in there, we all need to realize something, that as soon as we cross that threshold and go through that front door, I don't want to hear a peep out of you more than a whisper. I don't want you touching anything. I don't want you sitting on anything. I don't want you to do... No, none of that. We walked in, and it was as if this presence came over us that we knew we had to whisper. We had to be careful. We had to be gentle with what we did. All of a sudden, once we were there, it was like we were aware of our humanity. And that this place was originally ordained as a place to meet with the Holy God. And the sound of our voices, the sound even of our footsteps, the manner in which we handled the things within that building were somehow offensive to the holiness that was revealed in that place. There's nothing special about a building or a place that makes it holy. It wasn't that this church was in downtown Boston that made it holy. It wasn't that it was really old that made it holy. There's no special power about these certain places that possess, that, and that have, makes, makes any of them holy. Some places may have a, a special significance to us personally, where we know whenever I'm there, there's just a feeling that comes over me personally because of something that happened to me when I was there a certain amount of years ago. But that still doesn't make the place holy. What makes places holy is the presence of God. How many of you have ever been to Israel? There's a handful of you that have been to Israel, right? I'm sure that you can all attest to the fact that there is something special about visiting places where we know Jesus was present. There's nothing special about the water in the Sea of Galilee that makes it special, that makes it holy, that makes it significant. But when you know that Jesus sailed on that sea, for crying out loud, he walked on that sea. There's something incredible about that. 
when you go there, and I hope to get there someday, but I'm sure that when you're there, there's a sense of crossing a threshold when you go to those places where you know for sure Jesus was. Even if you're walking around the Holy Land and then there's a, a sight for sure you know Jesus was definitely here, something comes over you. There's a change in how you were acting, how you were thinking, when maybe you were 10 feet back the other way. There's a threshold that you've crossed. The same is true about the Mount of Olives. Countless other sites that can be visited where we know for certain the Son of God stood. And I'm sure that feeling that comes over someone as they stand in one of these places and consider that Christ once stood there. There's a sense of overwhelming unworthiness that comes upon you. You suddenly feel incredibly small and unworthy to be standing in the same place where the Son of God once stood. I think there is a tremendous benefit for us as believers today to embrace this threshold mindset every time we come to church. Church is not special because of the name that appears on the sign down by the road. Church is not special because of how fancy the building may appear. Church is not special because of any of the people that attend. Church is special and it is holy when God is present. There should be a change when we enter this building to worship the Lord. Not that we should tiptoe and only speak in a whisper, but we should treat it less as an opportunity to casually gather and more as an opportunity to come before the Holy God who is worthy of all of our attention and all of our praise. When church becomes a time for us to fellowship with one another, to catch up with one another, with all the things that happened over the course of this past week, then we've missed the point. Fellowship is good. It's edifying. We're called to do that. But don't forget that when we come to church, the object of our fellowship is not first to fellowship with everyone else, but to fellowship with with our Heavenly Father. We incorporate a greeting time in our service. We like to fellowship with one another. We like to shake hands. Some of us are a little too friendly at times. But we like to incorporate this as part of our service. We sing a number of songs as well. But do you know why the majority of our services are centered on the preaching and the teaching of God's Word? Our singing is done to give praise to God. And while we're encouraged to do so because God is worthy of all of our praise, trust me when I say this, what God has to say to us is far more important than what we have to say to God. We're not coming to church to see and to hear from fellow believers. We're coming to church to be in the presence of God and to hear from Him. For some reason, those lines get blurred, though. And we confuse why we're coming to church. We forget that we're crossing a threshold when we enter this building for the service. And we just go about our time as if it's any ordinary day and any ordinary occasion. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk and we shouldn't catch up with one another, but just don't forget the real reason why you've come here today. The modern church is seeking to shift away from the focus of God and more onto ourselves. 
And as a result, we have millions of people that are gathering on Sundays for the sake of fellowshipping with one another rather than entering into the presence of God. We've done everything we can to make everyone feel welcome just the way that they are, that we bring God down to our level and change him rather than changing our lives as we come before him. When Moses approached God, God required Moses to change, not the other way around. Notice what it says again in verses 3 to 5. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. He said, I'm going to approach this bush. I'm going to figure out what is special about this bush, that it's burning and not consumed. And it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. He said, draw not, not hither. Stop what you're doing. Don't come another step, he says. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. In order for you to come any closer, you need to change. I'm not going to change for you because God is holy and he's not going to compromise his holiness to be in the fellowship of an unholy being. If you're going to come to me, you have to change as you enter my sacred space and my holy place, he says. Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moses approached God. God required Moses to remove his shoes because of the holy presence of God that he entered into, not the other way around. God didn't make himself unholy to enter Moses' presence. It was the other way around. It's a sad day that we're living in where more churches are focused on making God unholy to fit better with our views and perceptions of life rather than us changing our lives to become more like the God who is perfect and holy. We're asking God, God, we want you to cross the threshold and enter our space, come into our presence, rather than us crossing the threshold and entering into your holy presence. We're, we are not what makes this place holy or special. I don't care who stands behind this pulpit and preaches God's word. It is not the preacher. It is not any member. I don't care how long a name has appeared on the membership role of this church. You are not what makes this church special. It is not the music that we sing. It is not the building. It is not the color of the carpet. It is not the chairs. It is not anything about this building or anyone that can come into it. It is the presence of God that makes this place holy. May there be a change of heart and a change of mindset for each of us who have long failed to see that we're entering the presence of God as we enter into his house. May there be a crossing of a threshold moment where our hearts and minds clearly shift to focus on God and to hear from Him. May our spirits rejoice to come before His presence with singing. May we enjoy the blessed fellowship of assembling together with fellow believers to worship and to hear from God as one. May we do everything we can to not exchange the holiness of God for anything that is unholy. May we be careful not to rob both God of His glory and ourselves of His grace. May we come before him with fear and reverence as we enter into the presence of his holiness. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for being long-suffering toward us, patient. Lord, for we know we struggle with this threshold mentality. Lord, we're often guilty, even myself, of coming into this building and coming into the service, Lord, not fully embracing and realizing that there is a threshold that we have crossed as we have come before the presence of a holy God. 
And Lord, there is a change that needs to, needs to take place within us as we see you and embrace you the right way. Help us, Lord, in the struggle of life as we seek, Lord, to honor you the way that you deserve to be honored and worship you the way that you deserve to be worshiped. May your name be always magnified from our lips, in our homes, and in our church because your presence is what makes us holy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.